get you anything that you need. Well, it is a great time to hear God's word. Amen. Uh, where would you rather be to start the new year than hearing God's word with God's people? Uh, so we want to do here as preparing our own hearts to be submissive when the word of God is preached. We want to pay reverence to it. So at this time, please stand as we hear God's holy word read before it is preached. Second Thessalonians chapter three, beginning in verse six. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not accord with the tradition that you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be burdened, be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear some things, some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Amen. Please be seated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, great God, we bow before your, you now, knowing that you are a God who loves to bless his people. God, we are humbled that we have the great privilege to come into your presence as your children, adopted sons and daughters by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that you would just allow us to feel your presence this morning. And, Lord, we know that when we enter your presence, we come with filthy rags. We come with things that we've done this past week that, that should that may bring us shame before you. So, Father, we come asking that you would forgive us of our sins, the sins that we knowingly committed and the sins that we are um, oblivious of, the sins of commission and the sins of omission. And dear God, we pray that against um, those in, our, in, our, in this room who struggle with idleness, God. Uh, we pray that we would not be a people who are idle in our labors, but we would give ourselves to the things of God. So, Father, forgive us where we have fallen short. Cleanse us through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and forgive us of our sins. Father, we thank you for how you're moving in our congregation. We, we thank you that, you are, that you've given Devin and Melissa this place. Father, in Rock Hill, we pray for a smooth transition. We pray for Melissa's life, God. We pray that you would heal her. We thank you so much for Devin and Melissa's faithfulness to you in the midst of this trial, trying time. We pray, God, that you would continue to improve their health. But, dear God, above all, that you would use this this trial to bring you glory, honor, and praise. Father, we do again pray for Clarissa as she travels. We pray that you would just bless her in her trip in Ireland. God, we pray for those among us who are sick. We, we pray for uh, Jerry Green and Ken Tedder. God, Jonathan McGurk, we pray, God, that your hand of blessing would be upon him. Father, we thank you for bringing Dave Thomas back with us. We pray that you would allow him to overcome this flu. We thank you for Miss Mary today as we celebrate her birthday. God, we pray that she would just know that she is loved by the people of God here at Park Baptist Church. We pray above all, Lord, that she would feel your presence. Uh, dear God, we do pray for the gospel to go forth in the world. Uh, we pray for Japan this morning. God, we pray that you would uh, take that nation who's been strongly influenced by 
enlightened Western, Western ideals. God, I pray that you would allow them to be softened to receive the gospel, that you would take that island and you would make it a, a nation that is receptive to hearing and believing in Christ. Father, we also just pray for our community. God, we pray for other churches in our midst. And we pray for Scott Davis this morning at Northside Baptist Church. God, we pray that as he preaches this morning that you would build up that congregation in your likeness, that you would form them to believe and to trust in the sweet message of salvation offered in Christ. And dear God, now we just pray for our own hearts. God, we know, again, how busy we've been the last several weeks, getting ready for Christmas and getting ready back again for this new year. We pray, God, now that you would just quiet our minds and our hearts, that when the word of God goes forth this morning, that we would hear it with obedient and ready hearts, that we would not merely be hearers of the word, O God, but we would be doers of it. Father, we do pray that this word would help us understand how much you care about a holy community, how much you care that we ourselves live righteously before you. So, dear God, I pray that you would help instruct your people. I pray that I may decrease and that you may increase, God. I pray that your word, the word of God goes forth to sharpen and to transform your people more and more into your image. So, God, we pray that Jesus Christ is exalted this morning. We ask it humbly, but confidently. Do so for your glory, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so, 1996, um, Mercury Grand Marquis station wagon, the big white one with wood paneling, also known as the grocery getter. Some of you may have had this car. I had the blessing to receive this car from my grandparents uh, in 2000 when I was a college student at the University of, of Pennsylvania. Uh, the car was great for, for traveling, a bunch of football players back and forth from our house to campus. Well, about my senior year, a, a light kind of came on in the car. You know that light, the, the check engine light. It, it came on in the car, and of course, I went to find out what was wrong with my car, and I discovered that there was a crack in the engine block. That is not a good thing to hear if you're a college student who has no, no money. They said, well, the car will drive fine, except there's gas that kind of leaks from the engine to, to, that might make you a little lightheaded when you drive. So I would recommend rolling down the windows when you would drive this car. I said, okay, fine. I kept driving that car like that with the windows rolled down for the next year and a half. I knew the problem, uh, identified it, but yet I did nothing about it. So one day I got, out of my, I got out of my apartment, went down to my car, turned it on, and the car didn't move. So I put it back in park, I turned off the car, took out the ignition, put the keys in my pocket, and left the car there. And now belongs to the, the, the great federal city of Washington, D.C. This is what happens when there's a check engine light on and we do nothing about it. Eventually, it's going to fall apart. This morning, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture. It's kind of like a check engine light for a congregation. It's talking about church discipline. And what happens when a church ignores the signs of failure to obey Christ in the community of faith? Well, eventually, if it is not addressed, it will destroy the church. So the question before us is, what are we going to do when we see the check engine light in our congregation? Are we going to ignore it, pretend it's not there, 
and just ride it out until something disastrous happens? Or are we going to address it? I pray that we would be the latter, that we would be a congregation that takes God's word fully and completely and lives by it. We're going to do this through three points this morning. You want to follow along in your, in your bulletin that I see in this text. The first is a kingdom work which is commanded. Kingdom work commanded. Look with me back again at this morning's text in verse 6. It says, now we command you. Just, just off, the, off, off the, the beginning of the sermon, commands and rules are part of the New Testament way of life. You know, we often view commands or orders as negative, but they're given for our protection. Parents give commands and rules to protect their children, and God gives commands and rules to protect his people. He wants us to protect us from sin so that we can shine as a light to those who are in darkness. Now, we have to be careful with this because we are in a culture where commands... Rules, orders sound harsh, restrictive, legalistic, and against the freedom we have in Christ. So let me say this. Legalism, that which you're trying to trust in your work to earn your way to heaven. Legalism is ungodly. It is of the devil because it denies grace. So we can't go there. And yet... When, you, when, you, when someone who is following the rules put forward in scriptures, your life will be protected from many sins. So we can't, we can't just have that pendulum swing and say, well, legalism is bad, therefore we're going to move all the way to licentiousness, and we can do whatever we want and still be saved. Well, no, we can't do that either. Right? God wants us to do the right things, but he wants us to do them with the right heart. We have to take those things together. We have to be careful, careful to avoid the extremes. Okay, so commands are not a bad thing. So we see that right there in the, in, in the New Testament. Clearly, right after that, we command you. And then notice it says to who? Brothers. This is a clear command into the entire congregation. Now, when you see brothers in, in the New Testament, it's not just saying brothers as in men. It's saying the brothers, the, the community of, of faith. There should not be a sharp distinction between that which is said to leaders, the leader's responsibility to, to get things right in a congregation, and, and the body of believers. This letter was written to the entire church of the Thessalonians. So that these commands in this text should be practiced by everybody. There is not a, a, a um, leader Christian and everybody else Christian. The commands are the same for everybody. We are all called to live for the Lord and his glory. So it's not merely the elders of the church or the leaders of the church who are responsible to deal with problems within the congregation. Here, let me say that again. It is not merely the elders or the leaders in the church to be the only ones to deal with problems within a congregation. Think about how God speaks of the church. We are a priesthood. We are a flock. We are a family. Right? We are, we are a temple. It is all individual parts worked into a corporate whole. Everybody has a responsibility for the upbuilding of the body of Christ. So I want you to see what is at stake in this passage. What is at stake is the reputation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what it says in verse, 
the second half of this verse 6. It says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, you have been called by the name of Christ. You are no longer fundamentally your birth name. You are now fundamentally a Christian. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, which is a believer, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You are no longer identified by your sinful past, but now you're identified by the life of Jesus Christ. His righteousness given to you. It's crucial. If you want to have a healthy understanding of church discipline, which we will look at as the passage goes on, we have to start that we are identified with Jesus Christ. The reason why church discipline happens, the reason why we listen to preaching, is because we care about the reputation of Jesus Christ. We care about how we as a body reflect Jesus Christ to our world. So if you ignore sin within the body, what you do is you bring down the picture, the name, the reputation of Jesus Christ. So when we approach church discipline, we have to look at it through the lens of the gospel. We all know that we're sinners deserving of punishment. Someone had to pay for our sins. And God in his kindness sent Christ to pay for our sins for us on the cross. He died in our place. Therefore, anyone who believes in him in his death will also believe, will also share in his resurrection. Because Jesus died and rose from the dead. Those who trust in Christ receive the credit of Jesus Christ's perfect life, his righteousness, his holiness, and, his, and receive the promise of eternal life. One way to illustrate this is, is think about the word grace. Right? The word, the word grace spelled out. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches... At Christ's expense. Tim Keller gives an example. I want to give you the illustration of helping us make sense of this. Let's say there's a man. He's in prison. Uh, What is going to get this man in prison a a new life? Well, you could say the first thing that's going to, to get him a new life is to pardon. So the governor writes a pardon. And he's out. He's no longer in In prison. He he has a new life. Well, not quite. He's just back to where the rest of us slobs are, Keller says. He's not in prison. Now he has to get a job. Now he has to work. It's a long haul. He doesn't have new life yet. You say, well, what more do you want? I tell you what's more. The salvation of the gospel is not so much like simply getting a pardon to get out of prison. It's besides getting a pardon, forgiveness. It's like getting the Congressional Medal of Honor on top of it. It's a negative and a positive. So he's saying it's not just that you get a a pardon, you're no longer in jail, you're no longer a slave to sin, but you also get everything that Jesus Christ had in his life. You get the Congressional Medal of Honor of God in Christ. Think about that great scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. What it must mean is that we are covered with the medals of Jesus Christ. 
We are covered with his glory. We are covered with all the awards, the medals of his valor, his cosmic bravery, because he took on evil, went down to death. All that he deserved is now on us. So everything that Jesus Christ earned in his life, death, and resurrection is now given to you, believer. You have that in Christ. So it is not about earning a medal, but living as if we already have earned it. What Christ has done for us. We bear the name of Christ. Look what the text goes on. It says that the reason that we command you in the Lord Jesus Christ. What do they command? It says that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. And not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So there you see it. There's a problem in the church. It's not the problem of adultery. It's not the problem of, of drunkenness. It's not the problem of drug addiction. It's the problem of laziness. There are Christians who bear the name of Christ who are walking in idleness. Idleness being not active, not using what they have for the upbuilding of others. Some Christians were not contributing to the needs of others but we're using the generosity of others to get by. Paul's saying, as, as the text goes on, they're more like leeches. They're, they're, they're draining the resources of the church without giving back to the church. Now let me add a caveat before I, I continue. He's not referring to those who have legitimate reasons. He's not referring to those because of sickness, age, disability, those who are trying but can't find work. He's not referring to those. You know, he's not, he's not even referring, to, I think, to those who are, who are retired. You know, remember, in our, in our modern construct, in our modern world, retirement is relatively new. Most people in the world don't retire. Um, you may no longer need a paycheck, money for a paycheck, but that does not mean you're, you're not called to, to work. The Bible says whatever we do, we have to work heartily unto the Lord. It is the Lord Christ we are serving. Many of you here no longer work for wages, but many of you still labor. You labor both within the church and within the community. So whatever stage of life we're in, we must view our life through the lens of Scripture. We always live with an eye on eternity. Whether you're 15 or whether you're 75, we always live being prepared for that day. I'm reading a lot this past week of a man named Leslie Newbegin. Leslie Newbegin was a, an Anglican missionary who went to India. He went to India in the 30s, stayed there until 1975, came back to England in retirement from 1975 till his death in 1998. His writings probably shaped Christianity for the 2000s. So his retirement is actually more productive, has had more, bore more fruit for the gospel because he did not give up. He is continuing to labor for the Lord Jesus Christ. In the text, we don't know the motives of these people, why they were idle. The Bible doesn't give us reason to. Some scholars say because they had a heightened eschatology. We get that from this book as well as 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, that some felt the Lord was coming back today, so they quit their jobs, they stopped working, and they went out to the field, the hills, and just waited for Jesus. That's what some were doing. They thought he was coming back right, right away. Others would say that uh, this church rejected manual labor. If you remember back in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12, it says work with your hands. 
I think what, what, what some would say is that some were not working because they thought manual labor was beneath them. Either way, it's not clear. We are not called to judge people's motives. Can I say that again? We are not called to judge people's motives, but their actions. All we can base our decisions on is what we see. So why is idleness, why is laziness such a big deal? First, it brings a poor witness to outsiders. Those who are idle make the church, okay, the community, a poor witness to those who are outside. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12. Paul says, after loving one another, he says, we urge you to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that the reason you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. How the church lives in the community, in the world, gives a, a, a either a good reflection or a poor reflection of Christ. So Paul's saying those who are lazy are giving a bad name to Jesus. So those who do not know him, why would they want to come to him if the, on your example? As not just an individual, but the church. They're bringing down the reputation of the church. If, if one of you, as a member of Park Baptist Church, are lazy at your jobs, the people you interact with, our co-workers, think the people of Park Baptist Church are lazy. You represent Park and the name of Christ wherever you go. That just happens. This is the, the community that we live and worship in. The second thing I see here is that they were using resources that could be meant for others. Those who kind of came into the church were part of the church, and they were not giving back to the church, but they were taking from the church. Those resources could have been used for others who had more legitimate needs. In the New Testament, it was the church's responsibility to care for widows. There was no such thing as Social Security. There was family and the church. That's how they took care of their food, of their lodging. And some of these people were robbing those who really needed it because of their unwillingness to work. It was causing disunity and disharmony in the church. It was sowing discord. If you remember how uh, the writer of, of Proverbs, Solomon, talked about in Proverbs chapter 6, he says, be like the ant. Labor, right? Work hard. Look at the ant. Look at, look at, look at what he has. And then it says in verse 19 that the things that the Lord hates are those who sow discord. If you go back and you, and you listen to that, that sermon I preached on Proverbs, it says those who, who do not work, those who are lazy in their work, actually show that they hate, that's the, the language of the scriptures, hate other people. This is a very real thing. So it is hard when you have people laboring and giving, laboring and giving, and then you see somebody else in the body doing nothing. That's discouraging. And Paul even addresses that at the end of this letter. Verse, the fourth thing, it says, it reveals that someone may not be trusting in Christ. If people are lazy and they don't work, it may be proof that you are not really a Christian. And if someone is not willing to work, here it says they shouldn't eat. The same thing it says in Ephesians 4. It says that those who, who once stole should now provide for their own needs and then give back to those who are in need. This is just the reality of what the Bible teaches. We, we have to take it at face value, take it at what it 
says. So we see that first point, kingdom work commanded. The second thing we see here is kingdom work copied. Kingdom work copied. Look with me at verse 7. It says, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. If you go back and look at 1 Thessalonians, Paul often said, reminded them of, of their labor. Like a mother with their children, like a father with his, with his own children, he exhorted them. We labored night and day. Second, 1 Thessalonians 2, 3-12. Paul was a bivocational missionary. He could have gone there and taken resources from the Thessalonian church. But he says, I don't want anything from you. Because he did not want the church to be mistaken for why he came there. He came there with the gospel. And he wanted to remove any burden or any hindrance from the church from hearing the message. This is why many church planners, uh, many missionaries go to foreign places and they don't ask the people for support. They have people here supporting them so that when they go, they can understand the motives are pure. Because most people... When you start doing good things to them, what do, they, what do they think? What's in it for them? Well, Paul was trying to remove that. It's, nothing's in it for me except for your salvation. That's the only reason I'm here. So Paul says he woke up early, he stayed up late making tents to provide for himself so he would not take anything from the people. He did not want to be a burden but a blessing. So let me say this first, share your life with people. You know, we want, we all have needs, beloved, and it is good to ask for help. Okay? One of the reasons, I, I get this a lot when people call me, they'll say, Pastor, I didn't want to bother you. You know, it's never a bother when God's people call each other. It's not a burden. It's a blessing to be able to serve. We, we should want to be a blessing to others. Because when we're a blessing to others, we're really being like Jesus, who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We should share our lives with one another. The Bible is replete with examples of that. Look what the next verse says. It says, It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Now, Paul was saying this. You, he could have gone and asked the church for money. There are several places in the New Testament that says that it is right and good that those who labor in the gospel should make their living in the gospel. Galatians 6.6 6 says that um, the church of Galatia should support their teachers. A laborer deserves his wages. But although Paul had the right, he foregoes that right to give the Thessalonians an example to follow. Paul came to the church like a father with his children. He wanted to be an example to the flock. How can a church know how to live their life for God without someone showing them? Remember, this church is young. I mean, we're talking months old. How are they going to know how to live for Jesus if they've never seen it? Listen, we need to teach one another with our words. But beloved, we need to teach people with our lives. More is caught than taught. If you read the New Testament, the number one way of, of passing on the doctrines of faith is life on life. This is how, how, how we raise children, isn't it? We don't tell our children, do what I say. You shouldn't only say that. You should say, watch how I live. 
Watch how I love your mom. Watch how I pray. Watch how I read. Now, the challenge is that we, we don't want to say that because often our, our own lives are lacking in, in Christian evidences. And this is why God has given us elders in the church. Elder pastors are, are not different in the sense that they are some kind of high, heightened spiritual level. All pastors are called to do are those who are examples of the flock, those who love the Lord, those who have maybe trust or maybe uh, know a little bit more of the scriptures, walk a little bit more faithfully. That's why we want to learn how to pass that on to others. You know, Paul says, follow my way of life. Can we say the same? Can you say, follow me, follow how I love my wife, follow how I respect my husband, follow how I labor at my job, follow how I study God's word, follow my example. And if we can't say that to others, well, then we may need to check our own lives. Paul was able to say that because he lived intentionally for others. You know how you, you, you can start doing that in your own life? One of the easiest ways for you to start thinking like this, this idea of imitation, is, is regularly be in a discipleship relationship. Who are you pouring into? You should be pouring into people in your family, husbands, wives, children. You should be pouring into your friends. But what about those who are younger in the faith? The best way to, to, to say, follow me as I follow Christ, is by helping somebody else follow Christ. That's what all Christians should do. All Christians, all disciples of Jesus, help others become disciples of Jesus. Well, lastly, we get to this idea of church discipline. Kingdom work corrected. Kingdom work corrected. Look at verse 10. It says, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. He reiterates the command of what he shared while he was with them. Now, we have to be careful not to go too far. People need to be held accountable for how they live their lives. He doesn't say someone who is not able to work, but those who are willing to work but don't, or are able to work but don't. We, we know that one day we're going to stand before God. Romans 2, that God says he will render each according to his, his work. Now this eating here may be the communal meal of the church. It could be the Lord's Supper. We don't exactly know. You know, Paul's referring to, to those who are not working as a, as a job rather than those who are not working to serve the church. You know, I think that we hear that often in the church, that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. I don't think that's a direct application here. Paul is specifically saying those who are not working for money, for a, a job. Look what the text says. It says, for we hear, this is the first time Paul addresses the, those who are actually idle. He says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such person, we command and encourage you in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So there's a word play in the Greek here. Instead of being busy at work, they were busy at not working. Meaning that instead of being productive with their works, they were being productive at sowing discord among other people, being busybodies, involving themselves in the lives of others. But here, it's the, the first time that Paul addresses those who are idols. It says, if you are idle, get to work. It's pretty clear, isn't it? We command and encourage you 
Do their own work quietly and earn your own living. Stop being a leech. It's pretty clear what Paul is saying here. The idle are to be rebuked and warned and told to get busy. We are doing those who are lazy and idle no favors by allowing them to continue in their manner of life. You're actually hurting them by not calling them to repentance. But it's interesting, when you think about church discipline, what is addressed more often than those who are actually sinning? It's actually the church in among whom those people are, are living in sin. Look what it says in verse 13. It says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. The, to- the context of doing good is holding accountable those who are living contrary to the traditions that were, were taught. It's be- do not be weary in doing good in exercising church discipline. The things that have been forgotten in, in the American church is church discipline. Church discipline was regular a part of the church until the turn of the 1900s. Everybody, every church practiced church discipline. Everybody did. Right. Historically, there were great reformers in, 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 in the 15, 1600 says the three marks of a church where the word is rightly taught, where the sacraments are rightly administered and where church discipline is rightly practiced. And now we see it nowhere on the scenes. So Paul says, do not be weary in doing good. Do not be weary in exercising church discipline. You know why he has to say that? Because it's hard work. It's hard to look at someone who is being lazy and say, you're being idle. You're hurting God's name. Repent. It is, it is hard work when you look at someone who is who's not in church, who's lost from the community of faith, to say, you are forsaking the gathering together of believers. You're in sin. You need to repent. That's hard work. And yet, what are we called to do? To do it. Do not be weary in doing good. There are numerous church discipline passages that I was going to read, but we don't have time. So let me just mention them to you. Okay, so if the church discipline is a new concept for you, let me just throw a couple of passages out there for you to write down and look at later. Matthew 18, 15 through 20. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 12. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. 1 Timothy 5, 20 and 21. Titus chapter 3, 10 and 11. Hebrews chapter 12, 5 through 11. What you see in all those passages is that God is speaking to the brothers. He's speaking to the community of faith. He's not speaking directly to those who are in sin. He's speaking to the church because the church is responsible for the lives of its members. Not the elders. The church. If someone is sitting in this body, it is not only my responsibility, it is all of our responsibility because all of us should care about the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us should care about what the community thinks about the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us, all of us are not called to be weary in doing good. Look at how he ends this. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as 
a brother. So there's two things. Let me close with this. The goal of church discipline and the spirit of church discipline. The goal of church discipline in this context is that the person would be ashamed. Ashamed of their sin. So they would be brought to repentance. The goal of church discipline is always repentance. It's not punitive. It's not for punishment's sake. It's redemptive. We want them to be redeemed. If you do not know you're in danger, you are not going to turn the other way. It's not punitive. It is redemptive. But also the spirit of church discipline. And I think we really need to, we need to stop and, and, and just hold this. It's love. Discipline is a loving act. It is a loving act. It is love when an earthly father disciplines his children. It is a loving act when God, our Father, disciplines us. And therefore, it is a loving act than when we, the church, discipline one of our brothers. Because, beloved, they're not enemies. Those who are living in sin are not enemies. They're brothers. They're brothers and sisters. And we need to treat them as our brothers and sisters in love. There are many reasons we do not address the issues in life of the church. It could be because we don't like conflict. It could be because we believe that it's just easier if we ignore it. Ignoring problems do not make them go away, but actually make them get worse. So we have to ask, will we be the kind of community that pays attention to our community check engine lights when we see those in our midst who are, who are struggling with sin? Are we going to go to them in love, encourage them to follow Christ, or are we going to turn the other way and let them continue to walk in danger? The risk of ignoring the problems of the church hurt the reputation of Christ cause disharmony in the body, and leave individuals in eternal danger. We all are responsible in love to address one another's sins. So that, so that we can better reflect the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything we do here should be about the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even the most difficult things we have to deal with in the life of the church. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would be a church that loves your word, that loves holiness, that loves righteousness. We pray, God, that when we see a brother or sister walking in sin, that you would give us enough courage and boldness to address it. God, we know that how we live represents you here. We are your ambassadors. We pray that the people of Park Baptist Church, this community of faith, would be a sweet reflection of what you have done for us in Christ. We pray that we would live up to the name that we bear. We ask this in the, in the one who gave us his name, Jesus Christ. Amen.